0: Yeah, let's dig into this delicious borscht. Smash nohok. no <laughs> nohok, indeed. Bo, bon appétit. Bo, wait, what do you even say in English? There isn't even an English way of saying this, there?
1: No, we just steal from the French, I think. Yeah. Although, I'll be honest, this isn't particularly great borscht. I'm not very good at making it. I don't have the, that Slavic touch. I don't think you need <laughs> to make good borscht.
0: No, neither do I. This is not nearly as good as the one I had in Kiev.
1: Yeah, I think it's the dill. I really don't like dill.
0: That is an issue. It really is. Welcome to this episode of the Post-Soviet Press Pod's 10 Minutes On series, where, in each episode, we focus on one of the 15 countries of the former Soviet Union, covering the essential basics, as well as things like language, culture, history, and the biggest news stories affecting the country today. And we'll be cramming it all into 10 minutes per episode. Your hosts today are me, James Bolton-Jones. And me,
1: Eleanor Evans.
0: And today, we look at Ukraine. Ukraine. And to power us through the episode, we've each cooked up some homemade borscht. I don't know, what can you tell us about borscht?
1: So, borscht is a delicious beetroot based soup that's very popular in Ukraine, though no one knows where it originally came from. I imagine most Ukrainians would say it was invented in Ukraine, though many Russians would probably claim the same. It's typically eaten with sour cream and with black rye bread to mop up dregs. How's yours tasting?
0: It's not bad, but it's not quite as good as the one I had in, uh, in Ukraine last. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the rest of the episode. Firstly, I don't know, give us some quick-fire facts about Ukraine to get us started.
1: Ukraine is a country in Eastern Europe with a population of around 44 million people, neighbouring quite a few countries, including Russia, Belarus, Poland and Romania. The main religion is Orthodox Christianity, though there's some quite complicated context there, which which we'll touch on later. The main languages spoken in Ukraine are Ukrainian and Russian. Speaking of which, can you say anything in Ukrainian, James?
0: Well, as it happens, I've been taking a class in intermediate Ukrainian at UCL this year. So how about chayvam shchastit, meaning good luck, which we're going to need if we want to fit everything we want to say about Ukraine into just 10 minutes. Let's turn to history now. Ukraine gained independence in 1991, But what came before that?
1: Okay, so although Ukraine in the modern understanding began to be conceptualised around the first half of the 19th century, Ukrainian nation builders tended to focus on two much older polities, which in their eyes contain the origins of the modern Ukrainian nation. The first one is Kievan Rus, a polity that lasted from around the 9th century to the 13th century when it was taken over by the Mongol horde. Check out the episode on Russia for more details.
0: And the second uh, polity, um, which modern Ukrainians refer to, is the Cossack Hetmanate, created by Ukrainian Cossacks in the 17th century. The Cossacks called their leaders Hetman, and in 1649, Hetman Bohdan Khmelnytsky defeated the Poles, who at the time controlled much of the territory, which is uh, Ukraine today, and created what some view as the first Ukrainian state.
1: The Hetmanate didn't last for long, though, and it was dismantled in 1785. In the 19th century, one part of what is now Ukraine was in the Russian Empire, and the other part was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In the Russian Empire, the people who had later become Ukrainians were called Little Russians, and in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were called Ruthenians. The development of a national consciousness proceeded at different rates in different ways in each part.
0: Right, and the collapse of the Russian Empire after the October 1917 uh, Bolshevik Revolution, and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after World War One led to the creation of the first modern Ukrainian state, which united the parts which had been under both of those empires.
1: And this survived in various forms until the 1921 Treaty of Riga, when the Bolsheviks and the Poles agreed to divide up Ukraine once again. Most of it became Soviet Ukraine, but a couple regions in the West became part of Poland. Small areas in contemporary Ukraine's western borders also ended up in Czechoslovakia and Romania between World War I and World War II.
0: So, up to 1991, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, with its present-day borders consolidated in 1954, when Crimea became part of Soviet Ukraine.
1: Much of what is today, western Ukraine was part of Poland between the First and Second World Wars, but after the Soviet Union was on the winning side in the Second World War, it joined the eastern and western parts of Ukraine together. Ironically enough, it was the leader of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, who was responsible for uniting Ukraine.
0: Why do you say ironically?
1: Well, Stalin was in charge of the Soviet Union during what is known as the Executed Renaissance, which was when the Soviet authorities killed or imprisoned much of Ukraine's intelligentsia in the 1930s.
0: Okay, and Stalin was also responsible for a man-made famine, also in the 1930s, known as the Holodomor, which caused the deaths of millions of people from starvation.
1: So Stalin wasn't exactly the most likely candidate to be the one to unite East and West Ukraine then?
0: Definitely not. Anyway, let's fast forward to 1991. Ukraine has its independence, but it's not all plain sailing from there, is it?
1: Unfortunately not. Though the communist regime was gone, many of the communist elites stayed in power, with the leader of Soviet Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk, becoming independent Ukraine's first president.
0: And then he lost the 1994 elections to another Leonid, this time Leonid Kuchma, who stayed in power until 2005. Uh, The previous year, 2004, was an important one for Ukraine because it was the year of the Orange Revolution when thousands of people protested on Independence Square in central Kyiv. They were fed up with the widespread corruption under Kuchma and were outraged by attempts to rig the election and put his preferred successor, Viktor Yanukovych, in power.
1: Amazingly, the protesters succeeded, with Yanukovych agreeing to hold new elections in which his opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, won.
0: Yeah, but then Viktor Yanukovych won the 2010 presidential election and set about enriching himself and his family.
1: This created general dissatisfaction with the Yanukovych regime, which climaxed in November 2013, when Yanukovych turned his back on an agreement with the EU and instead decided to sign an agreement strengthening ties with Russia.
0: This then triggered protests once again on Independence Square in Kiev uh, and efforts to suppress the protesters only increased their numbers and um, things really came to a head in February 2014 when over 100 people were killed. Yanukovych fled to Russia and Ukraine formed a new government with subsequent elections making Petro Poroshenko the new president of Ukraine.
1: Right and these protests are often referred to as the Euromaidan partly because of the fact that Yanukovych rejected the deal with the EU and partly after the word for square in Ukrainian Maidan as the protests centred around the independent square in Kiev, Maidan Nezalezhnosti, in Ukraine.
0: But then during all of this, Russia annexed Crimea and invaded the east of Ukraine with support from local separatists who proclaimed the creation of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Though for the sake of balance, we should say that there is a debate in academia about the extent to which this was a Russian invasion, a local uprising or something in between. This state of affairs continues to this day, with Crimea now de facto part of Russia, and the war in the east of Ukraine ongoing. And it's worth emphasising that under Ukrainian and international law, Crimea is part of Ukraine.
1: Moving on to culture. Ukrainian culture before independence was often incorporated into the cultures of the multinational empires it was part of. For example, 19th century writer Nikolai Gogol, in Ukrainian Mikola Hohol, is often thought to be Russian, though he is from what is now Ukraine. There were some Ukrainian cultural figures who were focused on developing Ukrainian as a literary language and on building the Ukrainian nation in the 19th century.
0: And the most important one of these has to be Taras Shevchenko, um, who was a serf from the bit of Ukraine that was uh, at the time in the Russian Empire. Uh, he moved to St. Petersburg to study art and then a group of famous artists paid for his freedom.
1: Right. And although Shevchenko was a great artist, his most lasting and influential legacy is his poetry which standardised modern Ukrainian and turned it from a peasant language into a form of high art.
0: Exactly, and Shevchenko took inspiration from the Cossack Hetmanate, which we mentioned earlier, and imagined the possibility of recreating a Ukrainian state in his own time.
1: Now, if we talk about contemporary Ukrainian culture, there are loads of great writers, musicians, and artists working in Ukraine right now, though I was particularly a big fan of Ukraine's winning entry in the Eurovision Song Contest in 2016.
0: Yes, that song was amazing, Though it was about a very tragic moment in history when the Crimean Tatar population of Crimea was deported to Central Asia in 1944, an event some, including the Ukrainian government, have characterized as a genocide. The singer Jamala is a Crimean Tatar herself,
1: Speaking of music, there's another really good Ukrainian rock band called Okian Elsie. Their lead singer, Sviatoslav Vakarchuk, has been tipped to run for president one day, and he set up a political party which is represented in the Ukrainian parliament and is appropriately named Hollis, meaning voice in Ukrainian.
0: Mm, um, we also said we'd mentioned some of the background to uh, religion in Ukraine near the start of the show. What's going on there, Elena?
1: Well, religion in Ukraine is complex, but I'll try to be brief. A year after Ukraine gained independence in 1991, there were three different Orthodox churches in Ukraine. One was linked to Russia, one called itself the Kievan Patriarchate, and the third wanted autocephaly, which basically means recognition as an independent church. Brace yourself for some complicated organisational details. These demands for autocephaly fell on deaf ears until the outbreak of war in 2014. Due to the worsening of relations between Russia and Ukraine, the church that wanted autocephaly merged with another Orthodox church, leading to the creation of a new church called the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which then gained independence.
0: Phew! So, after that whistle-stop tour through Ukrainian history and culture, what are the main issues facing Ukraine today, Eleanor?
1: Well, the two biggest issues are the struggle to implement and realise the spirit of reform which emerged after the Euromaidan and the ongoing war in the eastern Donbass region, which doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon.
0: No, sadly not. And though Ukraine's current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was elected on a promise to find a peaceful solution to the war, he hasn't done so yet. Funnily enough, before entering office, Zelensky was an actor and a comedian, and he gained his presidential credentials by playing the president in a TV show.
1: Wow, talk about life imitating art. So in terms of reforms, what are the main areas that need reforming?
0: So a key one is Ukraine's courts and its legal system in general, parts of which at the moment are very corrupt. Another connected issue is the dominance of the oligarchs in Ukraine, very rich business people who have an oversized influence on Ukrainian politics, the economy, the courts and the media. But the problem with reform is that all these key issues are interconnected to such an extent that the challenges facing Ukraine could prove existential. For example, weak governance then produces poor economic prospects, which then reduces the country's ability to defend itself from threats like Russia over the longer term.
1: So you could say it's not just about the relatively mundane question of reform, but whether the elite allows the country to develop the resources it needs to survive.
0: Exactly. And it's certainly true that Ukraine faces some daunting challenges, though I have to say I remain fairly optimistic overall. What would you say Zelensky is doing to deal with these problems? Um, What are the prospects for the remainder of his presidency?
1: So Zelensky has around three years left of his term. Interestingly, the election of Joe Biden in the USA seems to have had a positive impact on Ukraine's reform agenda, with Zelensky taking a number of measures to take on the oligarchs since Biden became president. This is not surprising, as if Ukraine can show the USA it's trying to reform, it will receive a lot more financial and political support. Yes,
0: I saw that in February, the National Security Council of Ukraine put sanctions on Viktor Medvedchuk, a pro-Russian politician who is uh, close to Vladimir Putin, who frequently takes stances which are very favourable to Russia. It was for that reason as well that uh, the Ukrainian government uh, banned three TV channels, which are said to be ultimately owned by him, even though the official owner is someone else.
1: To sum up, measures are being taken, but it remains to be seen if Zelensky will truly get back on top of the reform agenda.
0: All of this poses interesting questions about Ukraine's future. Will these reforms continue to be implemented and will they succeed? Will there at last be peace in the Donbass or will the war continue for a long time to come? Will Ukraine eventually join the EU or perhaps even NATO?
1: I would love to answer those questions that I most definitely have an answer to, but sadly we are out of time. We would like to thank Andrew Wilson and Dave Dalton for their expert help in preparing this episode.
0: Okay then, bye for now.
1: See you next episode.